Good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn over to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. In a few minutes, we'll be examining verses 18 through 22 together. Um, before we get there, I know I've mentioned this to you, but I'm a, a verbal processor. It's just the way that I operate. I know some of you are thinking, uh, yeah, you, you are. No kidding. We listen to your sermons every week. We understand this about you. But when I'm faced with a challenge or a decision or a problem, I work through it the same way. I'll sit down with my wife, and I'll actually pace back and forth in our bedroom and our living room. And she'll sit on the couch. She'll, she'll sit on the bed. And she'll listen to me go through every possible solution to the current crisis. She'll listen to me work through it. I'll just pace back and forth and say, well, you know, option A might could work, but it'll be expensive. Option B won't, won't break our bank, but the quality of work might not be the same. I think option C is off the table, but we haven't even thought about D, E, and F yet. We can't forget about those. And I'll go around and around and around, and she'll listen, and she'll ask these really good leading questions, and she'll let me work through my process. And then when I finally get to the resolution, when I finally strike gold, she'll just always say, yeah, you got it. You know, I'll say, you know what, it's option A. It's definitely option A. It's 100% option A. I feel good about this. She'll just say, yep, that's it. Then she'll sort of casually roll over and, and go to sleep, almost as if, she knew the right answer the whole time. But I digress. I do genuinely appreciate her willingness to listen. In almost nine years of marriage, I can only point to one time when she couldn't take my verbal processing. It was during my first semester of seminary. And one of my first classes at Southern was Systematic Theology One with Dr. Bruce Ware. And one of the overarching themes of that semester was the doctrine of God. And so for 12 weeks, I read, studied, and discussed the, the character of God. I was laser-focused on the attributes of God. And I was exploring these mysteries of God in the seminary classroom. And I wanted to bring them home and, and talk about them. But while I was in a seminary classroom, Lacey was in a, a kindergarten classroom. And so after a few weeks of nightly theological discussions, her patience finally wore thin. We're sitting across the dinner table from each other in our apartment in Louisville, Kentucky, and I looked into her eyes and I said, so in class today, we, and then she just threw her hand up. And she said, no. She said, Bo, I love you, but I can't talk about this tonight. I can't do it. Now, to be fair, she was tired, she was pregnant, she was working full-time, she had an hour commute one way, and so she shut me down. She couldn't handle another deep conversation crammed into a small window at the dinner table. You know, in this morning, as we continue our vision month, I was having a little bit of deja vu to this night in Louisville, Kentucky. Because here's the struggle in, in casting vision. Let me help you see behind the curtain a little bit. You know, when I started seminary in 2011, I began evaluating how I thought the church should function for the glory of God. 
But what are the most important things that the church should do? I started asking these questions eight years ago when I started seminary. So I've had some variation of these four foundational principles stirring in my heart for years. And when I came to charity last summer, as soon as I could, I brought the deacons into the conversation. And we started dreaming together. We started asking, how can charity be a more faithful New Testament church? We prayerfully and thoughtfully considered practical steps. We made plans. We set dates. And in December, we tied a bow on our 2020 vision. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because I know you may be overwhelmed by all this new information. I know you may have some doubts about some of these changes. I know you may have concerns about where the church is heading and what we're going to do this year and beyond. And, and you may not even be sure what to think at this point because you feel like you've been drinking from a fire hose for the last three weeks. And if I'm describing you, let me encourage you in a couple ways before we jump into the text this morning. First, we're going to circle back to these four principles often. These four principles are not something we're going to talk about once and then slap on a t-shirt and put on a, a posters and, and a website banner and, and never talk about again. One of my favorite quotes about leadership is that great leaders are repeaters. And so you're going to hear me talk about these things over and over. I'm going to circle back these principles till I want to throw up and probably till you want to throw up. But at the point that we're both ready to vomit is probably when we're starting to get it. So if you don't understand how all this works together, it hasn't clicked in your mind yet, don't worry. We're going to keep coming back to it. And second... We can have discussions outside of formal church gatherings. You may be thinking, I don't, I don't think a partnership class should be part of our membership process. Or I don't, I don't understand why we're adding that event to the calendar or this event to the calendar. Or I'm really nervous about having a gospel conversation with my one and I don't know where to start. If that's you, let's have a conversation about it. My phone number's on the front of the bulletin. My phone number's on the website. You can get in contact with me. Let's set up a meeting. If you have a, a problem, if you have a question, a concern about where we're heading, let, let's talk through it together. So I wanted to let you know that before we, before we jump into it today. Now, as we reach our fourth foundational principle, we're going to slow down the pace a little bit. We've spent the last three weeks talking about one principle per week. The first week was gospel-centered. Second week was community-driven. Third week was servant-hearted. And now for the entire month of February, we're going to be covering kingdom-minded. For the next four weeks, we're going to talk about God's kingdom expanding on earth, turning everyday conversations into gospel conversations, sharing our experiences with Jesus in our circles of influence, interceding, investing, and inviting our one. And so we're camping out at Kingdom Minded because when we breach the topic of personal evangelism, this is where we get uncomfortable. This is where we struggle. This is where I struggle. I'll be the first to tell you, when I was in seminary, I took a personal evangelism class. It was a required course for, my, for the Master of Divinity. And the first day of class, we sat down, and I was looking through the syllabus because I always like to just scan that first, see what papers I had to write, see what days the tests were, maybe see what days I could skip class, just 
full disclosure. And so I'm looking through the syllabus, and I see right away that we were going to be required that semester to have seven gospel conversations with strangers. And the first thought that popped in my mind was, well, I'm dropping out of seminary. I'm moving back to Georgia, and I'm going to join my dad's family painting business, and ministry is just not for me. (laughs) That's where my mind went immediately. And, and, And for most of us, this is how we feel about personal evangelism. It doesn't come naturally to us. You know, in three decades of three decades as a Southern Baptist, I've occasionally met a brother and sister in Christ who's an evangelism machine. I was on a mission trip a couple of years ago in Montreal, and there was another pastor there that was an evangelism machine. He 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 was gone for ten minutes, and we were playing basketball, and and I said, "Hey, man, where have you been?" He said, "Oh, uh, yeah, I was just sharing the gospel with those five teenagers over there on the bleachers." I said, five? You shared it with five teenagers? I thought you went to the bathroom. He said, oh, no, no. I just took out a slip of paper and I drew out the three circles and just talked through the gospel with them really quick. It was unbelievable. You know, we all know someone like that. There are some people who who have the, the spiritual gift of evangelism, but for the most part, we're uncomfortable with the idea of explaining our convictions to a person with different convictions. And because we're uncomfortable with it, we avoid it. We either stack up excuses. We say, I'm too busy. I don't know enough about the Bible. I'm really worried about rejection. Or we just twist Scripture completely. And we say, I don't believe it's my responsibility. I don't think that's my gifting. I think the pastor and the deacons and the Sunday school teachers, they're the ones who should be sharing the gospel. I don't feel burdened to do it. And we can slip into these patterns of disobedience, but here's the reality. It's the great commission, not the great suggestion. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and he called all of us into his labor. He called the entire local church for the purpose of making his name known among the nations. And so let's jump into Matthew 4, and let's talk about our part in this process. In the preceding chapter, we see the launch of the ministry of Jesus. John the Baptist prepared the way for him. John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan River. And then Christ went out in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And right before our passage, we see him come back to civilization and begin preaching. Verse 17 records, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We consider that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we must view it from an already and not yet perspective. In the first coming of Jesus, the kingdom was inaugurated. In the second coming of Jesus, the kingdom will be consummated. So in one sense, the kingdom has already arrived because salvation is available through the person and work of Jesus Christ, but the kingdom is not yet complete because the return of the Son is TBD. But in many ways, Christ's first trip to the earth would foreshadow his second. He casts out demons because there will be no demons in the age to come. He healed the sick because there will be no sickness in the age to come. He overcame the grave because there will be no death in the age to come. Understand that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, which is often something that we just 
pray ritualistically, when we say your kingdom come, we, we are praying for this second coming. We're praying for Christ to return and make all things new. As Phil Riken puts it, the kingdom comes mainly through the proclamation, through the announcement that Christ who was crucified is now king. The only way people ever come into God's kingdom is by hearing his heralds proclaim a crucified king. So in verse 17, Christ announced the start of his public ministry. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 18, he called his first disciples. So let's pick up the text there. Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. If I can be transparent for a moment, I had a lot of I had a hard time wrapping my head around this story as a child growing up in the church. And you have a few guys who are out in their boats, they're mending their nets, they're getting ready for a day of fishing, and then Jesus just shows up, this this random stranger shows up and just says, Hey guys, follow me. And they're just drawn to him with this, this, this mystical tractor beam. Like their eyes glaze over and they just walk after him, this man that they, they don't even know. And it just didn't ever really make sense to me. I mean, what's going on here? Is this a, a Jedi mind trick? Is this the Holy Spirit? I mean, how did Jesus convince these guys to leave everything they've ever known to follow him? And what I've found is that when we consider the historical context, we find some answers. So we can have a quick history nerd moment. It'll help us understand what's going on here. Okay, so here we go. In ancient Israel, all Hebrew boys attended Torah school at age five. And they would start learning the first five books of the Bible. And when they began their journey, they'd have this ceremony where they would take a drop of honey and they would drop it on their tongue. And for many of them, this is the first time they tasted something sweet. And so the image that, that they were portraying was that God's word will always be sweet for you. When they got to age 10, they started weeding them out a little bit. They started separating the men from the boys. Only the top tier students, probably the top 20% or so, would continue with school. They would learn the rest of the Old Testament over the next seven years. The others would be sent back to their fathers to become apprentices. Right? So, so basically the honor students would move on and then everyone else would go back home. At age 17, there was a final cut. At age 17, you, you had spent 12 years at this point learning the Old Testament. If you want to continue your religious studies, you had to find a rabbi to shadow. And the application process was simple. You would find a rabbi, you'd go sit at his feet, and this was your formal request to be his student. And then he would put you through a series of tests and decide if you were worthy to follow him. And in this day, there was an elite group of rabbis, 
sort of a, a seal team six of rabbis. And they had this characteristic that the Jewish people called smiha, which is the Hebrew word for authority. And so these rabbis with smiha would have three characteristics. They would be masters of the Torah, they would be miracle workers, and they would have the stamp of approval of two other rabbis with smiha. And in the first century, historically, we know of a dozen or so rabbis who were recognized as having smiha. So now, back to Matthew. When Jesus comes onto the scene, we need to see that he wasn't some random stranger. He was a, a rabbi that was oozing with smiha. He was certainly mysterious, and they certainly didn't know each other yet, but he had a reputation already. He checked these three boxes. Think about it. He was a master of the Torah. You'll remember that in age 12, he was in the temple correcting the religious leaders about Scripture. You'll remember that when he often taught, he said, you've heard it, but I say to you. And no one had ever heard someone teach with this kind of authority. You know, all the other rabbis quoted other rabbis, but Christ said, you've heard it said, but I say. And he was a miracle worker. Right after this passage in verse 23, the verse right after our passage ends, he goes to Galilee and he healed every sickness and every affliction that was among the people. And he had the stamp of approval. Chapter 3, John the Baptist told everyone listening, hey, there's someone in the crowd who's much greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And if that wasn't enough, when he was baptized, God the Father spoke audibly down from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. And so we should see first and foremost that when Jesus came to, to Peter and Andrew by the Sea of Galilee, he didn't come as a stranger. He came as this new mysterious rabbi who was oozing with smiha. And so let's look at the text together and let's pull out a few points of, of application for us. First, we see in this passage that Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. What do we know about these first disciples? We know one major characteristic about them. We know their occupation. They were fishermen. And so what does that tell us from what we just talked about? That tells us that they were learning the family trade. That tells us that they hadn't made the cut in school. That tells us that they weren't five-star prospects. They weren't AP students. They weren't the cream of the crop. Don't miss this. Don't miss that when Jesus assembled his team to transform the world, to turn the world upside down. He picked players off the JV, not the varsity. I mean, this is not normal. This would be comparable to Nick Saban showing up at, at a Georgia College intramural flag football game in 2010 and getting off his, his, his private jet, walking over to the field and saying, you know, that Washburn kid, he's slow, he's short, He's not overly athletic. He threw two interceptions. And he's not even playing in the, the most difficult intramural league. But he has potential. Let's offer him a scholarship. 
I mean, listen to how John MacArthur explains what's happening here. He says, in choosing his disciples, Jesus skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodias, the historian. He passed over Socrates, the great thinker. He passed over Julius Caesar, the great ruler. Instead, he chose men so ordinary, it was comical. Not a single rabbi, not a single teacher, not a single religious expert, not even a synagogue ruler. Half of them were fishermen. One was an IRS agent and another was a former terrorist. He chose the B team because his work would not come from their abilities. It would come from what he could do through them. See, Jesus consistently showed with them that his power in the weakest vessel is infinitely greater than the most talented vessel working apart from him. Jesus reinforced this idea later in Matthew chapter 11. He's talking to his disciples about the legacy of John the Baptist. And we were doing our study on the Gospel of John. We, we covered this a few months ago. But Jesus tells his disciples that truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there is risen no one greater than John the Baptist. So in Jesus' view, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. There's no one born of women. That, that means everyone. So he's saying that John the Baptist is greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than Jacob, greater than Isaac, greater than David. No one is greater than John the Baptist. But he continued, and listen to this. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Listen to those words again. The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. See, when we start talking about putting our, our faith in action, we start talking about sharing the gospel in the public square, we start talking about engaging our one with the gospel. You may be tempted to downplay your ability. You may be tempted to say, I know the least about the Bible. I have the least amount of talent. I'm the least eloquent. I have the least amount of spiritual gifts. Well, first of all, that's probably not true. But even if it is, even if it is, even if you are at the back of the line, even if you are at the bottom of the pile, even if you are the least talented capable, and knowledgeable among us, your ministry has the potential to be greater than John the Baptist's ministry. Because you have a partner in ministry that John the Baptist did not have. You have the Holy Spirit. And so when you latch on to Jesus and when you lean into the Holy Spirit, it's no longer about your ability, it's about your availability. Because he didn't choose you because you're a great person. He didn't choose you because you're a great witness. He didn't choose you because you're a great scholar. He didn't choose you because you're a great teacher. He chose you because you're a willing vessel. Understand that the Holy Spirit in the mouth of one believer is infinitely more power than an army of eloquent speakers in the world. So the question is not, 
how able are you? The question is, how available are you? Have you surrendered to God and said, I'm going to stop making excuses. I'm going to quit looking into my family, into my marriage, into my ministry, into my workplace and asking, what can I do? And I'm going to start asking, what can Jesus do? Because Jesus didn't choose the best, he chose the willing. Second, our primary call is to be with him. Listen to the simplicity of the command in verse 19. Follow me. He didn't tell them what they were doing. He didn't tell them where they were going. He didn't tell them if they should pack a bag. He didn't tell them what assignment he had for them. Because his primary call for us is not to do something. It's to be like, it's to become like someone. It's not to do something. It's to become like someone. A lot of times at dinner, my family will play this game where we'll go around and we'll We'll talk about our favorite things. We usually start by, what was your favorite thing that happened today? And then a lot of times we'll just ask, you know, who's your favorite Disney princess? What's your favorite dessert? What's your favorite candy? And it's really funny that when we play this game, Parker will always want Lacey to answer before her. And whatever Lacey says, Parker will say, that's my favorite too. So when Lacey says that her favorite Disney movie right now is Frozen 2, Parker says, Frozen 2 is my favorite Disney movie right now. When Lacey says her favorite food is medium rare steak, Parker says her favorite food is medium rare steak. Even though she wouldn't touch a medium rare steak with a 30 foot pole. But that's what mom loves and that's what she loves. And the way that Parker aspires to be like her mom is the way we should aspire to be like our Savior. And if you want to follow his example, you must get to know him. And to get to know him, you must spend time with him. And to spend time with him, you must saturate yourself in his word. And listen, we're not going to camp out here at point two for long, but recognize that our four foundational principles are not mutually exclusive. I hope you're starting to see that. These aren't four separate ideas. Hope you're starting to see how these flow together and how these work together. You know, if, you, if you're striving to be kingdom-minded, you must be gospel-centered first. When you're committed to the gospel, when you're committed to growing in your knowledge of the scriptures, when you're getting more reps than one hour Sunday morning, when you're completing the weekly readings, you're memorizing scripture, you're meditating scripture, you're praying over verses, you're reading other books about the Bible, you're listening to sermons on podcasts, then you're starting to walk into a deeper understanding of the gospel. And as you walk into a deeper understanding of the gospel, you start to get the dust of your rabbi all over you. Those students in the first century, this was the greatest compliment that you could give them, to say that you have the dust of your rabbi all over you. And when you get to that point, God's word starts dominating your thinking and your behavior. His word starts shaping how you see the world around you. His word starts directing your steps. His word starts motivating your evangelism. And his word starts helping your evangelism. I mentioned earlier that in my personal evangelism class in seminary, I was assigned 
seven gospel conversations with strangers. And I, I remember putting this off till the last week. I think I had three or four gospel conversations in the very last week. And I remember one day being at work. I was working as a leasing agent in an apartment complex at the time. I remember being at work and being desperate to have a gospel conversation. Praying that God would send someone in to look in an apartment and open a door for me to share the gospel. Well, it was a Sunday afternoon and it was really slow and no one came that day. And so for a couple of hours I was just sitting in the office with one of our lifeguards. We were talking about football, we were talking about his motorcycle, there was just really no window or door to a gospel conversation. And I started praying, God, I don't know what to say, but give me an opportunity. God, I don't know what to say, but give me an opportunity. I just prayed this over and over again, and after a few minutes, out of left field, this guy says, hey, you go to church, right? And I said, yeah, I, I do. I do. And he said, well, let me, let me, I, I want to talk to you about that because, you know, I, I grew up in the church, but I haven't been in a few years. I haven't really been since I got done with high school and, and I just don't know if I can go back. I, I really don't see how God could forgive me for all the things that I've done. And in that moment, the Spirit gave me the perfect verse. In that moment, Romans 3.23 popped in my head. And I said, well, you know, Scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So your sin is no different than my sin or anyone else's sin. And the cross is sufficient to cover all of it. See, when we spend more time in His presence, we're better equipped for His mission. Our primary call is to be with Him. Third, we must be willing to sacrifice for Him. To follow Him, you must be willing to sacrifice. Verse 22, immediately they left their boat and their father and followed Him. When James and John followed Jesus, they surely were leaving behind much more than their boat and their father. They were leaving behind their mother, their family, their friends, maybe girlfriends, fiancés. We don't know. But Scripture only highlights these two things. Because these two things represent the two most significant things in our lives. Their boat would have been their career, their financial security, their source of income, and their father would have been their most significant relationship. So Jesus was saying, if you're going to follow me, I have to take precedence over your job and your relationships. If you're going to follow me, you may be faced with a difficult choice or two. Last week I heard a story about a young Muslim woman in the Middle East who was saved through the ministry of IMB missionaries. They led her to faith in Christ and they baptized her in their church. When her parents found out, they demanded that she renounce her new faith. But she refused. She said, I can't. I can't do it. I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. So they said, if you don't renounce your, renounce your faith, we will renounce you. And they ended up locking her in her bedroom. 
few nights later, she overheard her father and her brother talking about murdering her. And she knew they were serious. So later in the night, when the family had a family emergency, her sister-in-law went into labor prematurely and the whole family rushed to the hospital. When this happened, she had an opportunity. And so she broke out of her room and she ran away from her family home and went to the missionaries who led her to Jesus. And they helped her immigrate to the U.S., and she hasn't seen her family since. Now listen, most of us will not have a similar experience. For most of us, our sacrifices will not even begin to compare to the sacrifices this young woman made. Here in the Bible Belt, you probably won't lose your family following Jesus. You probably won't lose your job following Jesus. You probably won't lose your financial security following Jesus. You probably won't lose your life following Jesus. But you will have moments in your life where you must evaluate your priorities. You will have moments in your life where you must decide what holds greater sway for you. When you take up your cross and follow Him, you'll be forced to consider how you spend your time and how you spend your money. You'll be forced to ask, am I using these for my glory or for God's glory? To follow Jesus means subjecting everything in your life to His Lordship. It means that you forsake everything that He has forbidden and you pursue all that He has prescribed unconditionally. And when you do that, you're going to have to have some bitter breakups with some things that are important to you. But I can promise you that Jesus will be sweeter. Jesus will be better. Finally, we must spiritually reproduce. Verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you disciple-making disciples. Follow me and I will show you how to spiritually reproduce. And again, this is not something that a few of us do. This is something that all of us do. We see the calling at the start of the ministry of Jesus in Matthew 4, and we see the calling before the ascension of Jesus in Matthew 28. Before he ascends to heaven, he says, Go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, I barely survived Greek in seminary. And when I say barely, I do mean barely. But can I share something interesting with you from the original language? That's a rhetorical question. I'm going to do it anyway. In the Greek, go, baptize, and teach are all participles deriving their force from one controlling verb, make disciples. So in the sentence structure, the going, the baptizing, and the teaching is centered around making disciples. So in the same way, the core of what we do as the local church is making disciples. Yes, we have a number of, of ministries at the church. Yes, we have a lot of events at the church. Yes, we 
gather together often. But the central goal of all of it is making disciples. Every ministry, every event, and every gathering serves the purpose of saving the lost and equipping the found. Jesus summarized his ministry in Luke 10, Luke 19:10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. If you are his disciple, you should be working towards the same end. This should be your primary objective. This should be your fundamental goal. The Great Commission involves every single believer. It's not something that a few of us do. It's not something we do in a few corners of the church. It's something that we all do. He has prepared you. He has appointed you. He has commissioned you. He has called you to go and bring forth fruit. Robert Coleman wrote a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism where he commented, when will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, which is what I'm doing right now, what we do every Sunday. Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. Individual men and women are God's method. Individual men and women are God's method. God's plan is not something, but someone. God's plan is not something. It's not a certain outreach event. It's not a certain style of music. It's not this pulpit getting louder and louder. It's not Easter Sunday. It's not vacation Bible school. His plan is you. His plan is not something it's someone. You are God's method. You know, and you may be wondering, well, where do I start? You know, I, I, I believe that to be true. I know that's what God's saying in Scripture. But where do I start? Where do I begin? You start with your one. In a minute... Matt's going to come forward and lead us in another congregational song. As he does, I want you to think about your one. I want you to think about one person in your family, in your friend group, at your office, in your neighborhood, at the ball fields, or at your gym who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't go to church, who isn't a believer. And I want you to write his or her name on the wooden circle that we gave you at the start of the service. And then I want you to come and bring their name down to the altar. And I want you to lay it on the altar and pray that God would use you to be a gospel light in their life this year. Christ has called you to be a fisher of men. He's called you to be a disciple-making disciple. He's called you to spiritually reproduce. And a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. So let's take a single step together this morning. Let's start with your one. It's time to go fishing. It's time to bait your hook 
it's time to cast your line. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this calling that you've placed on our lives to be a small part of expanding your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to, to share in your glory. Lord, I pray that for those in this room who may not know who their one is yet, that, Lord, you're putting someone on their heart right now. Lord, I pray that as we all individually focus on our one and as we intercede on their behalf, as we invest our time in them, as we invite them to this church and invite them to believe in your gospel, Lord, that you would honor that work. And we would see these names that are written on these wooden circles become names in the book of life. Lord, help us to do what you've called us to do. Help us to start with one. And Lord, we pray that one would turn into many. Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the cross. We pray these things in his name because he is sufficient.